You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles this afternoon, first of all, to Psalm 19. For the director of music, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We turn also to the New Testament, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll read the verses 7 through 18. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away, but their minds were made dull. For to this day, that same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. How are these articles, that is the articles of the Christian faith, the articles of the Apostles' Creed, how are these articles divided into three parts? The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, 
Why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there's a word that's very well known to you. I'm almost sure that you've heard it before. You've probably heard it many times. You probably know what it means. So I ask you, what does the word glory mean? The word glory, the the word glory as it appears in the Bible, what does it mean? What's a definition of, of glory? It's a word that shows up by my count or by the count of my Bible software, 295 times in the Bible. It's mentioned 30 time, 32 times in the confessions and again with the aid of technology. I've mentioned it in over 150 sermons in the last three and a half years. Glory. Simple word. Well known word. What does it mean? What is God's glory. You see, the word glory or the, the, the concept of God's glory is something that young children even are able to understand. Sure, the young children sitting here this afternoon know when you talk about the glory of God, they know what you're talking about. But at the same time, it's something that even the brightest and most Biblically informed scholars struggle to, to capture in any way that's, that's succinct and short. What is the glory of God? As believers, those who believe in God, His glory is very important to us. God's glory describes perhaps better than any other word, his being and character as he reveals himself in his word and in all of his works, in all that he does. As believers, we don't just confess God. We don't just confess a triune God. We believe in and confess a glorious triune God. The triune God, the God of glory. And so that's what we will focus on this afternoon. We believe in a glorious triune God. And we'll consider the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As scripture speaks about this glory of God. We believe in the glorious Triune God. Before we begin to speak about the glory of the Father, we should probably get on the same page as to what is the glory of God. Well, as I said, the brightest theologians struggle to capture it. They write whole books about it, so I certainly won't be able to do it the topic justice this afternoon. But perhaps we can begin with a picture, and actually this fits very well with with 
understanding the glory of the Father, would take a picture from God's creation. Because you see this all the time. You see in creation these these pictures that help us actually to understand God. And understand the way that God has made things. And so we can compare, in a limited sense, of course, God's glory to the sun. The sun. The sun, as you know, is inhabitably hot and fiery within. You can't go close to the sun. You can't even look at the sun in terms of its its essence, in terms of the middle of the sun. Even from very, 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 very far away, you cannot look directly into that hottest part of the sun. God's glory is like that. It's too bright, it's too powerful for us to gaze directly upon. God, in some sense, always hides his glory from us, because otherwise we would be destroyed by it. Just as if we were exposed to the full heat of the sun from up close. But at the same time, just like you can you can actually look at the sun. You can say, well, there's the sun in the sky, and you can look at it. You can see the radiance of the sun. So you can understand something of God and, and even the glory of God. You can understand the radiance of God's glory. Though you would be consumed if you tried to go cl- too close to his essence, you can understand something of his glory. So like the sun, there is an internal component and an external component, the, the middle and the radiance. God's glory is like that, but God's glory is also different from the sun in this way. The sun is not personal. The sun is not relational, but God is. God is a personal, relational, active God. So not all people experience his glory in the same way. See, if we were to all walk out onto the road, onto the parking lot, front lawn, somewhere outside of here this afternoon, if we were all to stand where there's no shade, we would all experience the sun in the same way. Sun just shines. That's all it does. But God's glory is not like that. God is a personal, relational, active person, being God. And so everyone experiences his glory in a different way. God can control his glory with respect to his creation and reveal it and bring about responses to it in different ways at different times. And so we'll consider God's glory this afternoon. We begin with the glory of the Father, and we begin where God, we begin where the Bible begins, revealing the glory of God, and that is in creation. Of course, we know from God's word that the Father is the creator. We also know that God created through the Son, and actually also by means of the Holy Spirit. So the triune God is active in creation. But yet, when we speak about creation and and the active person in the Trinity within it, we speak, first of all, about the Father. And God the Father has created all things for what purpose? For His glory. 
for his glory. That is clear from Psalm 19 as we have the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his mouth, uh, the work of his hands. God has created this world, the universe, the entire universe for his glory. And it's as if the whole universe sings and speaks about God's glory in the special and particular way in which God has made everything. God has created all things for his glory. And that's where his word begins as he creates this world and reveals his glory within it. But God, we should realize, was glorious even before his creation could sing and speak about his glory. God does not need creation in order to be glorious. He is glorious. God is not like an insecure, rich man. An insecure, rich man needs something to testify to his richness. That's why he goes out and buys the shiny car or the big house or whatever, because he needs something to testify to his own richness. Otherwise, he doesn't feel it. Otherwise, it's worth nothing to him. God's not like that. God is glorious, and because he's a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God was, has been from all eternity perfectly able to both give and receive glory among himself. He doesn't need anyone else. He's complete because he's triune. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity are able to give and receive glory. God does not need his creation, but it pleased God to create this world so that it could give him glory. It was his desire to share his glory with his creation. Now, you have probably heard before the truth that God's ultimate purpose in all that he does is his own glory. Have you heard that expressed before? That in everything God does, you can trace it all back ultimately to his desire to give glory to himself. And some people have heard this and reflected on it and said, well, it sounds like you're speaking about a selfish God. God that only works for his own glory or ultimately works for his own glory. That, that sounds selfish. Isn't God interested in us, for example? Isn't God interested in his world? Well, yes, God is. But to say that it's selfish, to say that the ultimate purpose for all that God does is his own glory is preposterous. Because God's glory is delightful. God's glory is what is truly beautiful. God's glory is what is deeply fulfilling. And so when God created this world for his glory, and as God governs this world for his glory, as God seeks his glory from his people as well, this is not selfish on God's part. This is serving on God's part because there is nothing better for all of creation than that we should sing the praises and the glory of God. This is where meaning and fulfillment is truly found. 
in giving glory to God. There is nothing better that we could do. God is gracious in creating a world that exists for his own glory. It wasn't only the natural world that was created for God's glory. God created man for his glory. We see that in Psalm 8. Perhaps you want to turn there. Psalm 8, page 848. Psalm 8 exalts the glory of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. But then it says later, what is man that you are mindful of him in verse 4? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The glory that is above the heavens in which God exists, God has crowned man with glory. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. Psalm 8 is speaking about man's position on this earth that Genesis 1 verse 27 describes. Man is created in the image of God. In the image of God. An image is a reflection or a representation of something else. Right? You see an image in a mirror, it's a reflection. If you see an image in a model, it's a representation. An image is a reflection or a representation of something else. And so mankind, as God has created us, reflects and represents the glory of God. That glory which is above the heavens made manifest on this earth in his creation of mankind. But, as we've been considering for the last number of weeks in the Heidelberg Catechism, man sinned and became a a hideous caricature of God's glory. You've seen a caricature, one of those, a painting of, of someone who you can kind of see what they look like, but their their face and their head and their dimensions are all distorted. That's what happened in the fall into sin. The glory of God is still reflected in us, but it becomes distorted by us. We no longer reflect on it in a way that brings him glory, but rather we've become self-possessed and corrupted. And so we've become an abomination to God's glory. We're prone not to bring, not to reflect glory to God, but rather dishonor prone more to rebel against God's glory than to praise him for it. So this is the state of man, sinful man, after the fall into sin. That happens all within the first three chapters of the Bible. And so the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of God's word, is God revealing how he, a glorious God, deals with rebellious Sinful and corrupt people. And we can see that in the glory, in his glory. When God reveals his glory towards some who oppose him, it consumes them. Boys and girls, as well as everyone else, of course, you probably remember what happened in Egypt when God showed his glory. You remember how the people of Israel had become slaves in Egypt? First they lived there peacefully, but then they started to... Uh, Pharaoh started to feel threatened by them, so he made them slaves. 
The people cried out to God and they, they wanted God to redeem them. So God sent the ten plagues against the Egyptians to, to teach them and, and to allow them or to cause them to release the Israelites. But they did it until that tenth plague, until finally they let them go. But then no sooner had they let them go and Israel was marching away from Egypt and Pharaoh got his army together and he went running after the Israelites. They came to the Red Sea and they would have been lost except that God parted the sea before them so they could cross over on dry ground. And then the pharaohs of uh, the armies of Pharaoh followed the people of Israel into the Red Sea. And then God said, I'm going to show my glory. He said, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And God in that moment displayed his glory. And do you remember what happened? Walls of water came crashing in on the armies of Pharaoh. Pharaoh and all his hosts, all his armies, were destroyed. God revealed his glory, and it meant destruction for Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh had stood up against the glory of God. Pharaoh had dishonored God. But what a... What was it like for the people of Israel when God displayed his glory? He displayed his glory in that act, and it meant destruction for Pharaoh. But what did it mean for those Israelites standing on dry ground? Well, they sang about it in the very next chapter in Exodus, chapter 15. As the English Standard Version translated, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. As God's people stood there watching this mighty act of God, they saw his glory a little differently. And this is the truth that God's word unfolds for us. When, for God's own people, when he displays his glory, it is a blessing. Since God has set his affection on Israel, since God had established his covenant with them, It's for their salvation. God displays his glory so that they might know him as the glorious God and so that they might praise him as they did, as they sang along with Moses. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. That's what happened at the Red Sea. That's what happened as the people wandered through the wilderness. When Moses, for example, asked to see the glory of God and his face later shone with the brightness of the glory. It's what happened when God revealed himself at Sinai and gave his law. It was for the blessing and the benefit of God's people. It's what happened when God came to rest on the tabernacle and later the temple in that cloud. It was for the people a sign, a symbol that God was with them in his glory. The glorious God was with them. In fact, that's why it was a cloud. Probably why it was a cloud. Because that cloud was actually meant to mask the glory of God. You can't see the glory of God. And so God masked his glory with a cloud so that he could come and live with his people. For the people of God, his glory was many times a blessing as he displayed his salvation. But it was not always to their blessing. 
Because God's glory is so intense, so powerful, so pure, that for a sinful and fallible people, it is a dangerous thing to be near. Maybe you remember that when God had the people make the tabernacle, they had all these different levels of the tabernacle. Only one person was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. Only the priests were allowed in the holy place. Only the Israelites were allowed in the outer court. Gentiles were not allowed in there. They could only go outside of that. And the camp, the the houses had to be outside of that. And if people were unclean, they had to go outside of the whole camp. That's because of the glory of God. There is nowhere you would rather be than with the glory of God. But at the same time, you must learn to respect and honor that glory. Just like the sun. You have to respect that it's powerful. It's full of intense heat. Yes, it brings life and growth and so many blessings. But if you do not take into account its heat, then you will be hurt by it. When Israel did not honor God, then God punished them. He did. Many instances in the book of Numbers where God would come in the cloud and it was not for Israel's blessing, but it was because they were rebelling against him. And so his presence in the cloud meant judgment. It meant judgment after the spies had gone into the promised land and had come back and said, let's not go there. It's scary. They're too big for us. We'll be destroyed. God was angry because he said, that's the promised land that I'm bringing you to. That also happened after the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. God descended in a cloud, and he destroyed those men, and he would have destroyed all the people except for Moses' intercession. And as you go on through Scripture, Israel's history increasingly becomes where they one where they do not honor God. They, they fail to recognize his glory and to praise him for who he is and for his great acts of salvation. Early in, in the Old Testament, you, you read about God's glory coming in the cloud and filling the tabernacle. And then you read about it coming and filling the temple. But then as you go on into the time of the kings, you don't read about God's glory filling the temple anymore. In fact, what happens? The temple is destroyed. Ezekiel sees a vision in which God's glory leaves the temple. But yet, but yet, this thread that moves through is that the glorious God does not consume his people completely, but that he continues to work for them. Why? Why does God continue to be patient with these people? Why does God keep returning to them? Why does God send the prophets to call them back? It is... You guessed it, for his glory. As God declares when when he showed his glory to Moses, he's a compassionate and a gracious God. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Part of the glory of God is that he is a forgiving God. Yes, that's the essence of us saying that he's a God of salvation. He is a forgiving God. And so when God the Father sends his Son into this world to bring salvation, what he is doing is revealing his glory. And so we come to the Son. In the course of the Old Old Testament, it becomes very clear that God is glorious. 
In fact, you can only understand glory by considering God in the New Testament. At the time of the coming into the world of Jesus Christ, God's glory is revealed in this new and, and surprising and incomprehensible, incomprehensibly beautifully, beautiful way. And John, in John chapter 1, outlines this for us. In verse 14, when he says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, tabernacled, dwelt among us as in the tabernacle. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the Old Testament, God had dwelt with his people, but in mystery and, and clouded But in the person of Jesus Christ, the glory of God, God the one and only, as John makes clear, was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Not the full onslaught of his glory, but his glory in his saving work. In Christ, God came to dwell among his people and to accomplish their salvation for the sake of his own glory. And so Christ reveals the glory of the Father to the world. Hebrews 1 states that Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. But as Jesus makes clear, he not only comes to display God's glory, but he also comes in in fulfillment of that relationship of glory that existed in the Trinity from all eternity. He came to bring glory to the Father, and as a result of his coming, the Father will bring glory to him. Jesus brings glory to the Father by doing the Father's will. And as a result of Jesus' submission, the Father brings glory his son. How, how does he accomplish that? Well, it, it all comes to a point at the cross of Calvary in his death. Just as he heads out before his death, Jesus famously prays in John 17 to his father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The Son came into this world to bring glory to the Father by carrying out the greatest act of judgment and salvation that this world would ever see. Greater than that mighty exodus out of Egypt when the host of Pharaoh was destroyed and the people of Israel were saved. The Son came to die on a cross as an expression of God's glorious forgiveness to wash away the sins of God's chosen one and to restore them to a right relationship with God, one in which they could begin again to give God the glory to his name to demonstrate the great power and love and grace of God for all the world to see. Yes, Jesus Christ came to demonstrate the glory of God for all the world to see so that they might either reject it, be condemned, or believe it and be saved. There's a whole world of themes to follow when we speak about the glory of God revealed in the death of his son. But there's one that we must pick up as we 
understand the context of Lord's Day 8 in the catechism, that we're speaking about faith. We're speaking about what we believe. Faith is a response to God's glory. As God reveals His glory in His Word, culminating in the glory of His Son becoming a man that who goes to the cross, that revelation calls for a response. God has revealed this glory to the whole world. Now, what will be your response? You either believe it or you reject it. You either see this as a powerful act of the glorious God who reveals the glory of his mercy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You either believe it and accept it, appropriate it, hang on to it and never let it go. Or you reject it. Or you say, I cannot see it. I will not see it. There is no glory in the death of a man on a cross. Brothers and sisters, believe it. See the glory of God displayed in the death of his son and believe it. Faith is a response to God's glory. At the same time, faith is a prerequisite for seeing the glory of God. Jesus says to uh, Martha, as he prepares her to witness the miracle of his raising Lazarus from the dead, he says, did I not say to you, tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He's calling her to believe so that she can understand that that miracle of raising Lazarus is the glory of God. It's a paradox. Faith is a response to God's glory, but you need faith in order to see God's glory. Where then will this faith come from? We come to the third person of the Trinity, to the Holy Spirit. Who is he that works faith in the heart of believers? Lord's Day 7. Question answer 21. Collecting all that God's word says about this truth. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. It is the Holy Spirit who works faith. And the effect of that faith-building work of the Holy Spirit is that as he points us to Jesus Christ, that we become united to Jesus Christ, of course, so that his death is for us, so that our sins were placed on him. On the cross, the Holy Spirit unites us with Christ in his work. And the goal of our faith, as we put our faith in Christ, is that we become more and more like Christ. And to become more and more like Christ is to become, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, more and more transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. The Holy Spirit who works faith in our hearts brings us into that sphere of God's glory where more and more as the saving work of Jesus Christ is applied to us, more and more we are changed and transformed and being remade into that image which reflects and represents the glorious God. What God had first created us to be. It comes full circle. This is what God is accomplishing through his son. 
as he applies that work by the Holy Spirit so that more and more we become less of a caricature and more of an image bearer of God's glory. Through the Spirit, God is redeeming and restoring what was lost in the fall into sin. What was lost? The glory that is due His name. Receiving the glory that's due Him. The glory for which we and all of creation were created. The glory that He has shared among His three persons forever and ever. That glory which is beautiful and fulfilling and glorious. By faith, we believe in a glorious God so that by faith, we might join the great multitude that can't be counted that Revelation 7 speaks about. People of every tribe and tongue and nation, the children of Adam fallen into sin in him, restored and redeemed through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit so that we can sing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Praise and glory Wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.